Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. You might also know me from the TV show of the very same name, and you can find clips and full episodes of that very show at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. On this podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts, people from around the world of human knowledge about the work they do and why it is so important. We get people who are thinking about things that you've never even thought of before. They spend their whole lives thinking about them. We bring them right here into your device, into your living room, so you can listen to the incredible ideas that they got bouncing around inside their big smart brains. Today's guest is Ellen Dunham Jones. She appeared on our TV episode, Adam Ruins the Suburbs, where she talked about how we can retrofit the suburbs to solve all the awful problems the suburbs have. And guys, the suburbs have some problems. If you've seen that episode, you know they're bad for the climate. They're bad for your health. They are incredibly segregated. Yep, I said it. Um, But look, instead of leaving the suburbs, we can actually address these issues and improve them through redevelopment and retrofitting the neighborhoods to make them greener, healthier, safer, and affordable. And Ellen is here to tell us all about it. She has spent her career studying how suburbs can adapt to these 21st century challenges and is a leading authority on suburban redevelopment. She's a professor of architecture and urban design at Georgia Tech. We are so happy she could join us from Atlanta. Let's get right to the interview. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So you appeared on our episode about the suburbs. And what strikes me most about the suburbs, and tell me if you agree, is that they were sort of built, you know, way back in America's heyday, you know, the the early to mid 20th century, back when our sort of sense of modern Americanness was formed. The suburbs shaped so much of what we think American life is. But we're starting to find that the way the suburbs were designed are not really compatible with a, a lot of the ways that we want to live our lives and uh, that there's a lot of disadvantages that people didn't realize when we were laying those streets out. Absolutely. I mean, the suburbs provided generations of Americans with access to the American dream, and they're they're beloved in, in many ways, and that is where most Americans live. But as they're aging, we're really seeing a lot of unintended consequences. When they were first built, most households only had one car. Increasingly, most new homes are built with three car garages. And, you know, I mean, so traffic has really gotten much, much worse than they were originally designed for. Everybody kind of recognizes that. But it's also affecting things like public health. I mean, we used to think of the suburbs as, of course, the sort of leafy, healthy place to raise a family. But that's really based on kind of 19th century ideas when the big health threat was infectious diseases in the Mm. overcrowded cities. The big threats now are frankly kind of more much more due to our behavior and it's problems of obesity, heart disease, diabetes that come from sedentary lifestyles of everybody kind of sitting, driving, sitting, sitting, sitting. <laughs> right, I mean that, that... That, I never thought of it that way. That yeah, people would have thought it's that old idea of uh, Gerald's feeling unwell. Let's go to the countryside and get some country air, or or just that sense of leaving the miasma of the city behind, or at the very least, all the pollution. Uh, but now uh, we're, we're becoming aware that the the suburbs pose their own health risks that are sometimes even worse than uh, what we have in urban areas. Absolutely, I mean the. The leading cause of death has been um, car crashes for anyone under 35. Uh, And 
now the opioid crisis seems to be um, catching up to car crashes. But it's, it's just that, you know, it's not to say that cities and downtowns are necessarily all that much healthier uh, than the suburbs. But when you account for differences in income and and things, which income really affects health more than any other single factor. But we, we just see that the suburbs are not as healthy as we thought. Um, so, you know, we're trying to get, there's sort of our opportunities now as the suburbs age um, to try to create spaces that get people walking and more physically active. Right. Well, let's let's get to that in a second, because um, I, I also think there's an interesting uh, change in how we use the spaces we've built. You know, I always think about how, uh, you know, this is my version from reading uh, Robert Caro's book about Robert Moses, that when he built I grew up on Long Island and there were all these uh, all the highways on Long, on Long Island are called parkways, northern northern state parkway, southern state parkway, et cetera. And as a kid, I was always like, why are they called parkways? And it was because when he built them in, I think, the 20s, not that many people had cars and they were designed for pleasure driving. He literally thought, the uh, Robert Moses, New York City planner, that people would be driving along these things, admiring the scenery, like, oh, let's go, like Mr. Toad, driving around the countryside slowly to get a breath of fresh air. Uh, he had no idea that people would use them to commute 100 miles either way every day uh, uh, to and from work. And so the you know roads themselves ended up not being... Uh, suitable for their for their current use is similar things happening with this with the suburbs themselves absolutely i mean actually even uh the highway system that came in through eisenhower was really when he was president he was so so impressed with germany's highways he felt that it was a matter of public safety that we needed to interconnect the cities with all these interstate highways so that you know troops could mobilize and 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 that was really the reason for our interstates and in fact the result of the interstates was that it just meant that people could access the cheaper land is always that land that's further away from the core of the city. And the highways made it just easier and easier for more and more development to just keep leapfrogging further and further away. And so, yeah, the highways now, I mean, obviously, they're most crowded during rush hour. It's not exactly the mobilizing of the troops. Oh, that that, may, that makes so much sense. So the the reason sort of the suburbs developed in a way was those highways were built, and then oh, now you suddenly have access to this sort of empty land that can come across very cheaply, and that's why those first people to live there got that early American dream of home home ownership. Absolutely, yeah. But it's it's been going on for so long now that actually now what is is happening is that the transportation costs of of you know when somebody goes to try to buy that cheaper home with a slightly bigger lot you know all the way out on the edge it comes with a much higher transportation cost and it varies on the price of gas and all a bunch of other things but generally after about 10 or 12 miles the savings you're on the house are more than made up for by the additional transportation cost. Right. And that's been one of the bigger significant shifts. Yeah, that's something that we we almost don't even take into account the cost of transportation when it's uh, by a, a car in America. Uh, but it's so enormous. I mean, uh, we talked about this. We did an episode on cars a couple of years ago that touched on uh, some of the same topics. The cost of 
car if you you know live in a suburban home and so you have uh two you know working family members and they both have to commute to different places they both need to pay five figures for this thing and and pay the insurance cost on it and the gas and the repairs that really adds up it does absolutely and so one of the other i think bigger cha- sort of surprising um changes that people didn't really expect is we're seeing we've seen a tremendous increase in the suburbanization of poverty. And it mm. means that you're especially seeing now some of the, you know, the poorest households really getting, sometimes they're, they're being gentrified out of the cities, so they're moving further and further out. But other times, the foreclosure crisis really hit a lot of people who were kind of maxing out their credit to try to get that house uh, homeownership when... Right predatory lending was um, making that possible. And so you now have, you know, this significant increase in poverty in the suburbs. And it's adding to suddenly now the transportation costs and lack of access to jobs to opportunities, uh, really, really exacerbating the problems for a lot of real, of low income households. That's so fascinating. I mean, we, we normally think of poverty as being an urban phenomenon, but it's growing in the suburbs that that's so striking. It's it's growing at a dramatic, very dramatic rate. Uh, Atlanta here where I live, we saw a hundred and fifty nine percent increase from two thousand to two thousand ten. Wow! It's, it's really sad. And so if they have to choose between a house and a car, they're going to live in the car. Right. I mean, that's something that uh, I've only recently realized that in especially in suburban areas, homelessness even looks different because people uh, just begin to live in their cars. And so it's not so uh, it's not as visible a problem as it is in, uh, you know, uh, downtown New York or downtown L.A., uh, but it still exists. It's just you have people, you know, sleeping in the Walmart parking lot. Absolutely. In cars and also a uh quite a lot of encampments um but again out of the out of sight you know often um in wooded areas or you know just sort of areas that are very not visible but there will be tent camps of of homeless often in very affluent suburbs wow so what how else have the suburbs changed since you know that sort of levittown heyday and what are the challenges facing them today What's changed is the fact is just how desirable they are. So the fact that they haven't really changed their physical form is kind of contributing to their just becoming a little boring. Mm. Um, We've got changing demographics have been really significant. We all think of the suburbs as family focused. You know, that's who lives in the suburbs. Well, it's actually not true. Uh, since 2000, two-thirds of suburban households have not had kids in them. Really? Yeah. And and it's we're going to be at 70% pretty soon. Uh, the reason is because the baby boom generation, they were the babies that the post-war suburbs and the real you know boom in suburbia happened. Um, they're empty nesters at this point. You know, they raised My their- parents are in exactly that boat, yeah. And and a whole, and they have a lot of company, <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're still there basically. But the kids have long since grown up and and moved on. 
um, after the baby boom generation, there's Gen X, which are in their mostly in their 40s, early 50s. Um, and they most of them do live in the suburbs. Most of them do have kids. But they're a small generation. There just aren't that many. Uh, then there's Gen Y, the the folks mostly in their 20s, and everybody, early 30s, um, you know, they're sort of the big question of will they start really moving to the suburbs or, um, you know, inhabiting the suburbs in the same way as earlier generations. But so far... They grew up in the suburbs. They find the suburbs boring. They grew up watching Friends and Seinfeld, where the city <laughs> is a happy, fun place, you know. And uh, they pref- generally, studies show, you know, they prefer that urban lifestyle. But the fact is, most of them have not yet started marrying and having kids. And whether they'll be able to afford uh, the urban lifestyle in the downtown, in sort of the authentic downtowns is is a very big question. And the reality is most of Gen Y's jobs are actually out in the suburbs. Most of 82% of jobs in the U.S. are more than three miles from the central business district. Really? So, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. Always think of, you always think of the uh, city center as being, oh, that's where everyone goes to work. That's where, you know, you take the Long Island Railroad in or you, you drive on the highway till you get to the city center and that's that's where you work. And, and then at night you drive back out of the burbs. Uh, it's about – it's less than 20 percent generally. I mean, really? It varies in different metros. But nationwide, um, suburb to city commute is – is usually about uh, less than 20 percent. Hmm. Most people are commuting from suburb to suburb. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're saying that, OK, we you know, maybe the millennials can't uh, uh, stay in the urban area. Maybe they'll want to move to the suburbs. But in a lot of areas, it's a question about whether they'll be able to. Right. I know here in California, the uh, suburbs are kind of full you know, like they're full of baby boomers who still live in those houses and haven't left. And uh, there's no new space to build new homes. So so uh, the the price of housing is very high. And it seems like they're sort of cut off from that old fashioned American suburban dream, too. It's true. So that's, you know, why there's now there's a number of things, I think, going on with the generations. But we're, that's why we're starting to see a lot of suburbs are urbanizing. They're for the first time they're allowing multifamily, you know, apartment buildings to be built and condos. And the fact is that the vacancy in the suburbs tends not to be in the residential areas, but there's a lot of vacancy in the retail, the strip malls, the mm. dead malls, the dying out of date office parks. That's really where we're seeing dramatic changes now. Right. And that's what so much of your work is about, correct, is about how we can uh, take those sort of uh, depressed or or parts of the suburbs that aren't working anymore and retrofit them to be more urban and to solve the problems that the suburbs have, correct? Exactly. I, I maintain the world's only database, at least as far as I know. I don't. No one else bothers, but um, I track what I deem to be successful examples where dead big box, dead malls, office parks, garden apartment complexes, strip malls, you name it, prototypical suburban property types have been either redeveloped and urbanized or re-inhabited with just more community-serving uses 
or re-greened into reconstructed mm. wetlands or turned into parks, but in, you know, in one way or another, made into more sustainable places. And so you are, uh, my understanding is an optimist about the suburbs because I've spoken to many urban planners in my uh, in my work on the show because it's a little bit of a pet topic of mine. I, I feel like the or more, you know, people who study urban planning and the suburbs have a really bad rap. And it seems to be the attitude is like, oh, what a mistake this was. We should tear it all down and start over. But of course, we can't do that because people live in those places. You can't just knock down uh, people's homes and, and you know, make them uh, start living in uh you know, build a new Lower East Side Manhattan for them to live in. Uh, so the question is, what do you do uh, to solve this? And y- you seem to have a really optimistic viewpoint that this sort of retrofitting can really revitalize the suburbs. I, d- I do. I mean, it's not I, I don't disagree with a lot of the, with the critiques of sprawl. Uh, <laughs> nobody likes to see a business fail. You know, and and these when you see these, uh, you know, when a neighborhood is suddenly hit or a community is hit with their malls dying, and boy, a lot of them are now. Um, Over a third have already died. Probably another third of the existing ones are dying. We did an episode Um, on this as well about the mall. Yes. Yeah. But I look at it as great opportunity. We get a do over. You know, we can now instead of making you know, a cathedral of commerce surrounded by acres and acres of parking that's dumping runoff and poisoning our <laughs> creeks. And I mean, all you can all that there's lots of negative things that one can say about any property type, really. But, you know, now we get the chance to actually reinvent, reimagine um these properties to really address these kind of 21st century issues. And I think there there are a lot that, yes, the suburbs were completely designed around a sort of image of assuming it was all families, assuming everybody is pretty much middle class or affluent, um, and assuming really that, that the suburban model of development and its emphasis on private space and private life is always going to be better than, oh, that old model of cities. And what's really been interesting is that now the emphasis, we've seen a complete flip um, where in terms of preferences, in terms of where the market is, today, the suburbs are beginning to look to the cities as the model for, you know, how do we actually get buildings where it's, it's the box now is right on the sidewalk, the parking is behind, um, there's an emphasis on the public life and the and mm. buildings framing the public street framing parks. Um, and it's, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons um, why there's been this this flip and this return to – it's not just a return to cities. That There are certainly a lot of cities have seen a growth in population for the first time in over 70 years. Um, but it's also just a return to urban living, even in the suburbs. 
I had never thought of that as a distinction between suburban and urban life, that in urban life it's very public and that there's always public amenities, public parks, often public bathrooms, public, you know, in the old, you know, New York, public pools were uh, or and public baths were a common thing. Uh, whereas, yeah, in the in the suburbs, it's it's very much structured around privacy. I've got my fence. I've got my house. No one can come in here. I'm going to drive in my private car to the uh, uh, private store where, <laughs> you know, um, and with the exception of the sort of the libraries and the schools, uh, there's there's much less uh, public life. But I also, uh, yeah, I can see that sort of trend. I feel like everywhere I go now in uh, America, they're they're proud of the new bike path or of uh, the new uh, uh, rail to trail project or or whatever they may have done recently. Absolutely, it's and I think you know some of it might be because of the internet and social media and 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 our our smartphones and and laptops. We spend so much time on screen that now there's a real hunger for true face-to-face interaction Mm. or at least just being in a very pleasant, real physical space uh, where design really welcomes you and feeling, you know, recognizing that you actually are part of this this species of humans and we actually like to people watch and and gather and, and have social experiences that you cannot get online. And that's what's really been kind of ascendant lately. It's also being driven, though, I think, again, by just these demographic uh, changes. So those aging baby boomers, they're the big private house on the big lot that they loved while they were raising their kids, and they really valued that privacy. If they've retired, Suddenly, that big house starts to seem kind of lonely, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, there are sociologists tell us that the the baby boomers really like to volunteer and be active, even in in retirement. They they're not retiring quietly. They want to kind of you know be involved and engaged in a lot of things. And so, a lot of them they want to stay in their same community with their friends and their doctors. But they're actually looking for a more walkable urban lifestyle. At the same time, you've got the the Gen Ys who want urban lifestyle, but their jobs are out in the suburbs. And so they also are really looking for a more urban lifestyle. And so when you have the two biggest demographic groups kind of converging with that interest in mm. urban lifestyle in suburban location, that's what's fueling. That's why I've got over fifteen hundred examples in my database. And, <laughs> I mean, you just des- you just described my family to a T. My folks just uh, went from Long Island to a small city in Oregon, and they're so thrilled to be able to walk to a restaurant, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. I- and I constantly have been. Uh, you know, looking for even in Los Angeles, which is about as suburban as a city can get uh, for a more sort of urban way of life. Um, but the problem is with the with, you know, the built environment. Right. When we design when we laid out these streets and built these buildings, they're not uh, you know, they're built in concrete. And if you want to change them to change, you know, to match the changing tastes of the people uh, living in them, like you've you've got to you know, you can't just tear it all down and start over. So you have to adapt to with what's there and uh, change it. So how, how you know, what, what are the kinds of steps that people are taking to retrofit these spaces? 
So lots of different things. Um, so in terms of redevelopment, and I do caution, there's really three strategies uh, from an urban design perspective. If it's a strong market, great, redevelop, urbanize, and not just ur- redevelop the individual properties, but also redeveloping the corridors themselves, bringing in transit or putting streets on road diets where you narrow the lanes and put in the bike lanes and widen the mm. sidewalks. Um, so that both public property and private property are often getting retrofitted together in in for redevelopment. And what does that mean, redevelopment? Does that, does that mean, you know, sort of knock it down with a bulldozer and start again? Yeah. So that means okay. so if you've got a dead we right now we have uh 57 dead malls that have are or are at least under construction right now where they're basically they're tearing down most of the mall. They usually keep the department stores because those were multi-story, those were concrete. You can easily adapt them, but the the one-story stuff in the middle, that's history. Um and then they're building the downtowns that those suburbs never had. They're putting in a street grid. They're putting retail at the ground floor and apartments and office above. And there's really we've got about 50 some um, right now and a whole bunch more that are talking about it and, and trying to get there. Uh, sometimes that's at the scale of the single mall. Sometimes it's at the scale of a much larger area in uh, North Bethesda, Maryland, about half hour subway ride out from Washington, D.C. One of the metro stops is White Flint. And the 400 acres around White Flint sort of centers on the eight to 10 lane Rockville Pike highway. Hmm. So it's not walkable. You know, you've got this massive highway and then a metro station, but you do have. You have some fairly tall sort of eight-story office and eight-story apartment buildings scattered around and mixed in with gas stations and very low-rise stuff. It's just sort of a commercial, pretty messy, but typical of so many uh, places, you know, that are not that far from their downtown. White Flint, the uh, county, approached the six major property owners and said, we want to do a new plan. And the property owners actually said, let us have a stab at it first. Hmm. So the property owners themselves brought in a really good transportation planners and said, okay, give us a plan. How do we make this area walkable? They then agreed to about a approximately 10% tax increase that will go to pay for the construction that is already, is paying for the construction of public streets on their private land. You know, I mean, it sounds crazy. Why would they agree to this? Well, because then they are allowed to build up to 30 stories. And they're mostly not building quite all that many towers. They're building a few, but they're they're mostly building kind of up to, certainly up to uh, four and five. And just make, they're urbanizing old strip malls, old fast food restaurants. Um, it's all getting re- replaced with urbanism that now is connected to a transit station. 
So this is a area not walkable, spread out, sprawly, but there's a metro station right there, and the private owners of the land willingly say, hey, let's turn this into a walkable space with public streets where people can take the metro and stroll from store to store because it'll it benefits them financially to do so. Exactly. It wow. increases their rents, and it is possible to do this, these kinds of things. So. So what are the other strategies? So there's there's redevelopment. What are the others? So reinhabitation is also a really important strategy. So in reinhabitation, you're keeping the existing box, you're keeping the the parking lots and whatever's around, but you're you simply instead of retail, uh, inhabiting it with now more much more community serving uses. So there's a whole bunch that of whether it's dead big box stores, malls, strip malls that have been turned into office, into educational facilities, medical facilities, churches, gyms, libraries. Um, but it's, it's always kind of re- – it's an opportunity to relocalize an area so that in mm. replacing the former chain store that's gone out of business with now – Local, whether it's public uses or, you know, small entrepreneurial, maybe immigrant businesses uh, coming in. And there's a lot of really great examples. And, and it doesn't take a really strong market. I mean, the important thing to remember is that, you know, we're seeing retail tanking all over the place. Uh, over 8,000 stores will be closing this year. We, you know, wow. it's, um, there's a lot of vacant retail space. And when it dies... It not always, but usually, I mean, it means the market has also died. That area has lost the middle class jobs that that retail depended on. Um, so, you know, you can't redevelop, redevelopment will not work everywhere, but reinhabitation is often a terrific uh, way to revitalize an area. Right. So you. You can't always uh, knock down the old mall and build uh, a new high-density commercial district where people are spending a lot of money because maybe the, the demographics have changed such that there, people there simply don't have the money to spend anymore. But, but there'll always be sort of a desire for good, small, local businesses is what you're saying. Good, small, local businesses and or you know, libraries, uh, right. courthouses, um, education. I mean, one of my favorite exa- re-inhabitation examples is in um, East Austin, Texas, where uh, a mall had died. And initially, they were first off, the JCPenney's had been vacated. So uh, Austin Community College had been looking to expand a new campus. They bought the J.C. Pennies. Um, ultimately, they bought the whole mall. But they, and it was actually, there's a really cool story. They completely reinvented how to teach math, and it's been really mm. successful. And math is so needed for the kind of middle wage, middle skill jobs that. Um, you know, as 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 our economy becomes more automated, that's a really important sector that we need more folks in. That then attracted some of the high-tech companies um, who were actually also interested in co-locating in the mall and actually offering internships to the students at the community college. Then, so they've now, they're filling up the, the whole, the dead mall with both some office, some of it uh, 
computer com- computing companies and some of it the college. And they've partnered with a, another developer to you know build apartments, essentially student housing, on top of the parking lots. So they're now wrapping the the old mall is a, is a re is being re-inhabited, but the parking lots are being redeveloped with housing. And then there's a t- small town green that's kind of been put in at the entrance that goes right to the new transit station. So, wow. so you're getting you have, all of this. You know, it's great. Once you have that first uh, sort of uh, little little snowball rolling down the hill, it starts sort of an avalanche of refitting all these spaces. One thing comes in, another thing comes in. That's uh, the, the, that's so that's such a wonderful story. I, I also want to talk about uh, regreening, which I know that you've uh, that that you've written about because we often think of you know the original promise of the suburbs is that it's this you know greener space than the city. But my experience of growing up in the suburbs was that sort of all the green space was you know being destroyed by suburban development. And we talked about on the show how uh, uh, suburban dwellers have much higher carbon footprints than uh, those who live in uh, cities. Uh, so what is being done to make the suburbs greener places? So this is uh, – I agree with you. I mean, it's it's the topic that I – I think we need way more examples. Right now, only 2% of my uh, case studies are re-greenings because oh. we, don't, we don't have enough means to really finance them. But there is such a strong need. Much of the time, it's to do with water. So – before the Clean Water Act of 1970, it was very common to build office parks and malls on top of creeks. Uh, generally, we built the subdivisions on the high land, and then then the commercial took over the, the lowlands. And we just put the creeks inside culverts underground. Um, and they were oversized at the time, and that worked for quite a while. But over time, there's been so much development upstream and putting in more and more parking lots and paving over everything so that when it rains, and especially now with climate change and more and more severe storms, you get this runoff that's racing into those culverts. It's over, they're over capacity. The culverts are failing. We get flooding older parking lots that start to perk now with the water coming up from the ground. Right. Um, it's a me- It's a real mess. <laughs> I even heard that uh, uh, in Texas, the hurricanes there recently, uh, that caused so much flooding that a lot of the problem was the way the, the suburbs had been developed there, that it was sort of the most far-flung, Wild West suburban development in the country, and that that had really uh, exacerbated the flooding. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that the old way of doing it was always to just assume we could engineer our way out of it with what we call gray infrastructure, build the pipes, build the concrete culverts, you know, it's, we'll just Mm. manage the water by telling the water where it should go. It's a very 1950s point of view, a man shall control the water. Absolutely. Well, so increasingly what we're we're seeing is just a lot more reliance on green infrastructure. Mm. So whether it's daylighting those culverts so that you're actually exposing the, the creek again to sunlight, which increases the water quality, gives you a little more space to absorb water, but also lets the water infiltrate back into the aquifer, which is where we want it to go anyway. 
Um, or we're seeing stormwater parks. Uh, there's a couple places um, in Meriden, Connecticut. They built their, a mall in their downtown, which was – we did a lot of that in urban renewal days, late early 70s. And it was built on top of four creeks, I think, or at least two. Wow. Anyway, it, it kept flooding. So finally, they tore down their mall, and they've built a park. So it's a green park, but it's designed a little like a bathtub so that during severe storms, it just holds all the water for their entire downtown. And they really feel like they've solved the flooding problem for the entire town. And they hope that that's going to re- you know, help uh, with a lot more revitalization. Um, Atlanta's been building a bunch of stormwater parks as well. And they're really terrific amenities for their neighborhoods. I mean, the old way of dealing with this was just to build a big tank underground that had zero impact on the rest of the neighborhood. And now, it, increasingly, we're we're really creating parks, and that increases adjacent property. Uh, how does the how does the park hold water? That's so interesting. <laughs> so, literally, it's a little bit designed like a bathtub. So you you sink the the edges of it. So in in, um, in Atlanta, the, at the uh, Fourth Ward Historic Park, they built a big bathtub. It really has pretty tall retaining walls. They, they keep it wet all the time inside the pool, but it just, well, it can just hold an enormous amount of water when it needs to. In other cases, you're actually just designing the whole park. Is, it's mostly lawn space. But it's depressed and lower so that just the, this, all the water from neighboring properties flows into and just turns the park into a little lake for yeah. the time period it needs to. So it's designed to take a bath. <laughs> so oh, the, uh, and, and then in the meantime, it's watering the plants that you might have in the park. Exactly. I mean, it's not <laughs> really it, it does limit somewhat what kinds of plants you can plant because they sure, not need, all of them can take a bath. plants right <laughs> exactly uh, but but i've i also know that people l- love projects like that i mean a- anywhere that you know uh it's the you know the old train right of way the old train track that's converted into a walkable park or the uh uh, you, you know, he, here in here in L.A., we have the L.A. River, which is, yeah. you know, this super industrial for folks who are listening who don't know the L.A. River is like, you know, uh, this former riverbed that was sort of turned into this uh, concrete channel that cuts through the city and basically now only exists to sort of like, you know, suck up the sort of floodwater. Uh, but uh, little bits of green have started to poke through uh, like there's a little bit of marsh in it. And occasionally you'll see like a heron or a beautiful bird like that. And the water... Uh, They've started doing things like letting people kayak on uh, the river, uh, uh, you know, during certain parts of the season and slowly adding more and more green to it. And people people love it. Whenever anyone talks about, oh, we're greening the L.A. River, they have a plan for development. It's it's an incredibly popular uh, idea. People people just love these sorts of projects. Absolutely. And it really I mean, there's one uh, an example in Minnesota, Phelan, where a strip mall had failed and as had the culvert underneath because it had been built on a drained wetland. Because it happened to be on a major migratory bird route, they were able to get funding to re- to just demolish the strip mall in its parking lot and reconstruct the wetland. 
And that created such a beautiful amenity that then it attract it became lakefront property and nice. attracted new d- private investment of housing. The first new investment in over 40 years in an, in an extremely low-income neighborhood. So regreening when it's done well, um, you know, a, be- a lovely park tends to increase adjacent property values up to 30%. And so it's, you know, you're revitalizing the ecology, you're also often helping to revitalize a neighborhood, although it can also, the pendulum can swing uh, too far in the other direction. And in Atlanta, we have a wonderful uh, rails to trails uh, project, the Beltline, um, but it's actually become so beloved and there's so much new development going in around it that now it's also leading to a lot of gentrification and displacement. Well, I'm here talking to Ellen Dunham-Jones. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Hey, Helen Hong. Yes, J. Keith Van Stratton? What's the difference between a layover and a stopover? I have no idea. What's the difference between optimal and optimum? I have no idea. Well, what's the difference between an actual conversation and a promo for our new show on Maximum Fun, Go Fact Yourself? Nobody has any idea. Go Fact Yourself, the game show with celebrity contestants, super smart experts, and answers to questions you've never even asked. Listen twice a month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be in the audience for our tapings of Go Fact Yourself in downtown L.A. It's free. Go to GoFactYourPod.com for more info. We're having a very realistic conversation. Yes, we are. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to architecture and urban design professor Ellen Dunham-Jones. Okay, so there are plenty of reasons why retrofitting the suburbs is happening uh, and why towns themselves are incentivized to make it happen. Uh, I'm also curious, though, about what are the challenges to these sorts of projects? Are there people opposed to them saying, no, I like my old sedentary driving way of life? Is it, you know, is it expensive? Uh, what, what, are the, what are the challenges to it? Oh, all of the above. I mean, there. it's definitely true that I think, um, you know, I have tremendous respect for anyone who's willing to volunteer their time to serve on a local planning board and things. But the reality is m- most of the people who have the, the time to do that are the retirees. Right. And many of them, they've seen the landscape around them become degraded and they're, they want to protect their neighborhood. And their idea of protecting their neighborhood is to maintain it in ex- and try to attract exactly the same fam- families that look the same as what it, they looked like when they first moved into the neighborhood 50 years ago. And the reality is, it's time to let the suburbs grow up. (laughs) It's time to let them evolve. Um, There are predictions that actually, I mean, we're already now at the majority of households are one to two person households. If your community only allows the construction of single family homes, and that they have to be at least 2000 or more square feet, Good luck selling them. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I mean, in certain markets, that works fine. But 
nationwide, we have a glut of single family homes. We and the boomers are actually going to, you know, have little trouble finding selling their homes when when they need to. There was a whole piece. There was a whole piece in The Times about this. I just read a call. I think America's single family home problem about how housing prices are sky high across the country. And a lot of it is because we have all these large homes and there are people who, you know, will buy that home, knock it down and try to put three sort of smaller units there for, you know, to increase density and to uh, for for people who want to live in that new urbanized way of life. And then the people in, in around will say, no, you can't do that that changes the character of the neighborhood xyz which is you know an understandable position but it also is perpetuating the state of affairs where no one can afford to live in these single family homes anymore exactly because there is so much resistance to changing you know subdivisions of individual single family homes um most of the retrofits by far in my database are really on the commercial property. Um, you know, when when you redevelop a, a dead strip mall site into housing, you're not taking away anybody's existing choice of how to live. You're just adding now multifamily or cottage court or any number. You're, you're adding some new choices that are more in sync with today's actual market and demographics. But right. at some point, it will be interesting to see. There are some examples of entire subdivisions or entire neighborhoods um, that have been changing. There's been quite a bit of growth of communities now, at least allowing what um, our, us policy urban wonks called detached accessory dwelling units, mm. or essentially, you know, the granny apartment above the garage Um that's a great way to at least begin to densify and diversify some of the housing options. But by far, most of really where we're seeing the changes are in the commercial properties. Um, and office parks. Office parks are another really uh, an area where we're seeing a lot of change. The the heyday of off, of building office parks was in the 1980s. The malls really was the 1970s, and that was sort of followed by the office parks. And those office parks are no longer the big, shiny, new thing. They're not all really Class A space. Um, the cities have become so attractive now for the millennials. A lot of those corporations that left the cities in the 80s to go out to the office parks are now moving back into the cities so that they can hire the most talented uh, millennials and Gen Y folks that they can find. So, Or a lot of the, the owners of the office parks are now trying to figure out, okay, we have to urbanize. And so they're starting to build housing on top of their parking lots. They're bringing in residential. And sometimes they're tearing down a little bit of office, but often they're just sort of infilling around the office parks. And it's really fascinating, actually, to see, I think, some of the um, very ambitious uh, efforts that are going on now with because some of these properties are really really big. <laughs> it's going to take <laughs> them a long time, but they're they're doing it. Re- there's there's a lot of reinvention of uh, of office as well. 
Well, so what can we be doing, you know, in our episode of the television show, you come on at the end to say, hey, you know, you don't have to leave the suburbs, even though they have all these problems, you know, they're bad for the climate, they're bad for your health. Uh, They, uh, you know, we haven't even gotten into the uh, sort of racial and economic disparities in the in the suburbs yet in this conversation. Uh, But despite all that, you don't have to leave the suburbs. You can stay and help to make them better. What can people do in their own communities to help these changes along? I mean, the number one thing is to support changes to the zoning codes. Communities in the 50s and 60s and 70s just sort of Xeroxed each other's zoning codes. And, you know, um, and so we have this uniformity. And the, the assumption at the time was that it was a it, the modern way of life was to keep everything very ordered and let's have, okay, people who can afford single-family homes over here, apartments over there, schools over there, shops over there, and you get everywhere by car. Um, and the mixing of uses was somehow just seen as wrong. <laughs> <You know>? So <laughs> allowing – and that, again, goes back even further than the 19th century. That's when we used to be afraid that, oh, someone's going to open a slaughterhouse next to my home. <laughs> you know. And the reality is when you get a good mix of uses and you get the synergies between them, right. it helps everybody. You know, and so you want to have certain uses that um, are lively and populate the street during the day, other uses that help keep the street with some people so that it's safer and, and lively at night. You want to have other uses so that the, and then you can kind of share the parking. You make it so much more convenient for people to be able to walk places and and, uh, you know, make use of this. So nowadays we see tremendous premiums. Uh, again, and to, the developers are recognizing it reduces their risk to have a mix of uses. So if one use is over, kind of, you know, the overbuilt, well, the other one will do okay. And there's a whole lot of reasons to really support a mix of uses. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of ways zoning has kind of been reinvented. Uh, but a lot of communities are, you know, understandably nervous about change culturally our country has sort of gotten used to the idea we expect our downtowns to be dynamic places that change all the time but we expect the suburbs to remain frozen in whatever form they were Uh. first built in so i think a lot of what we really just do need to do is is allow for change and kind of trust it test it and embrace the notion of public life. Uh, you know, we, we, we've got a generation now that especially, I mean, I think Gen Y is really the whole sharing economy, whether it's Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, you know, all, all these new disruptive technologies. And I think we will see a lot of millennials, um, you know, more and more of them will be raising families in the suburbs eventually. But I hope they'll bring with them their interest in sharing and a public life. And, you know, I would hope that also, I mean, by the time we get to autonomous shuttle buses and robo taxi fleets, I mean, (laughs) we could completely reinvent the sort of suburb based on shared mobility. And I hope the Gen Y generation is up is going to be the one that leads the way for that. 
Wow. Well, you know, it's always the younger generation that uh, pushes the ball forward. And I have to say, it's wonderful to hear such an optimistic vision for what autonomous vehicles could do for our neighborhoods. Well, so, you know, realistically, yes, I, I think it's important to have a vision of how autonomous vehicles really could be this quite you know, uh, give us the communities, the future for our communities that many of us would really want mm-hmm. so that we can plan for it. Because if we don't plan for it, what worries me is there's really two other scenarios that may, in fact, be just as, if not more likely. One of them is certainly that most people who currently own a car will simply replace their privately owned car with a privately owned autonomous vehicle. And the assumption with that is that that will exacerbate sprawl. It'll make it just easier. You know, commute time won't matter anymore. So people will go further and further out. But also the likelihood of sort of doubling the number of trips and more and more congestion and traffic um, as people can, you know, suddenly you'll have about 30% of the population right now can't drive. They're too young or too old. So You've, you're going to have an increase uh, in the number of people who now can take trips, but you'll also be able to sort of have your car take you to work and then, oh, I don't want to pay for parking, so go back home and then come back and pick me up, but then we'll go home. You know, So that's sort of – that's one scenario, and it's where I think this image of luxury, which has always been part of our kind of assumption that as you get wealthier, you go for more and more luxury um, – Autonomous vehicles could well play into that. and We could get suburbs that have even less public life and people even more isolated uh. in, in, in private bubbles. But even worse is my fear that the, the suburban communities that are experiencing a lot of uh, the increase in poverty are seeing their tax bases decline as we speak they're not going to have the money to be able to pay for all of the infrastructure and wow. upgrades to their streets that's yeah. needed to support these autonomous vehicles. So that's going on the that could could result in the next generation of redlining where the mobility companies won't service those communities because their streets aren't good enough oh, wow. and or they'll say okay, we'll come in if you sell us the streets. We get to own the streets and we'll put in the infrastructure uh that's needed but then we have a monopoly. And that really scares me. So suddenly, you know, I mean, if you imagine, you know what it's like right now when you're in New York in a taxi cab and the TV is on blaring ads at you that you yes. keep trying yes. to shut off. Yes. <laughs> so imagine if there's a company that has a monopoly that the only way you can get around <laughs> is to, you know, I mean, you'll tell it, I want to go from A to B and it'll say, oh, but last week you stopped at C and oh, look, here's a coupon and oh, we're going to go to C first. <laughs> oh. You know, I mean, you can just imagine. You're writing a, a horrible sci-fi novel here. Uh, I mean, but except that it's not uh, fictional. It, it, this could happen. It's kind of wall-e for the poor, I think, yeah. for suburb, poor suburban communities. I think it speaks to that we can't allow uh, we, we can't just allow this future to come into being, you know, by itself. We have to design our spaces mindfully for it. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ellen. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Well, thank you once again to Ellen for coming on the show. And that is it. 
for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. But we will be back in two weeks, so do not fret. You can simply tune in then. Or, hey, go back and listen to an old episode. Hey, have you heard the one with Daryl Atkinson from like a year and a half ago? Oh, my God, it's so good. Just scroll back in your podcast app and listen to that one if you want to hear some more. That one gets my personal recommendation. Uh, But, hey, or tune back in in two weeks. Our producer is Shara Morris. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. That would help us out a lot, and we thank you for doing it. Again, you can find clips and full episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, at truetv.com slash Everything. And you say it with me, guys. The Watch True TV app. You know it. See you next time. Thank you guys so much for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.